0: Hi, guys. Welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe.
1: Hi, Phoebe. Hey, Jules. How are you?
0: Oh, Mariah. I'm, I'm okay. Surviving. Surviving, not thriving. Yeah, I would definitely say I'm in survival mode, not thriving <laughs> like my girl, Megan. <laughs> That's because she skipped
1: that funeral. But anyway, we've done too many royals adjacent podcasts. So we are going to put a pause on those. For For those of you listening who are like, please don't speak about Prince Philip again or I'm going to lose my mind. Don't worry, we're not going to. <laughs> I don't know if you ever look at our social media, Jules, could, if you look at the comments on it. I made uh, a comment, obviously, on the last episode that we recorded around the royals don't do that much which I stand by as a statement. You know, we talk a lot about life of service, but actually the life of service is not proportionate to the life of privilege that they lead. And I stand by that statement, but man, people were going to town on me on our TikTok. They were like, like, you sound so stupid. You sound so foolish. You don't think a life of servitude is enough? Like what's wrong with you? I was like, wow, these people are
0: bootlickers. (laughs) (laughs) That is so hilarious. And, you know, it's so funny that you get all of those comments on a platform like TikTok, which is meant to be like the young person's platform. And, you know, what I've noticed is that our followers on TikTok are so invested in the monarchy, which is hilarious. I didn't see those comments, but as usual, we kind of laugh those things off.
1: Yes, thank God. But, like, it really does... (laughs) There was a couple of hours where I was like, let me just go back on and see if anyone's written anything different. And invariably, it was just another you idiot comment. So I'd be like, oh, time to close this up again.
0: Yeah, obviously, it's really surprising when you look at something critically, and other people don't, it really is a shock. So yeah, I guess we can park all of that stuff around Prince Philip, because we don't need any haters this week. Exactly. There's enough other stuff going on. Yeah, for sure. I think the major thing that happened last week, and it was a shame that we didn't get the chance to record, but the Derek Chauvin verdict was probably the biggest thing or one of the biggest things that happened last week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was just thinking that I really hope, and I think a lot of people felt that the verdict has to be negative or the city is going to burn. Totally. So I don't know what your like view was. Like, How were you feeling before the verdict came out?
1: You know what? I I think obviously it's firstly important to acknowledge that as a white woman, there was only so much kind of fear is the word I'm going to use, whether or not that's totally accurate, that I would feel about a verdict like that. You know what I mean? That there is a fact that we are spectators to racism, but we don't encounter it in the same way. And I think there was a lot of what I was seeing online, which spoke about this murder was literally recorded in broad daylight and there was still uncertainty whether or not there would be a guilty verdict and that tells you a lot that or almost everything that you need to know about a the justice system in america but also systemic racism globally yeah. so i i don't know i felt that i fluctuated because there would be times when i'd be thinking no there's no way that he won't be guilty And then there would be times when I think, well, actually, track record speaking, there's every chance that he won't be found guilty. And so it almost felt like I was watching it outside myself. Do you know what I mean? Because I agree with you. I I did think if he isn't found guilty, what are the ramifications going to be? There is going to be such a surge of unrest, deservedly so.
0: Yeah. It was kind of like
1: bated breath,
0: right? Yeah, I think especially with the fact that Dante Wright was murdered. So Dante Wright was a young black man that was murdered by police during the trial and about a week before the verdict. And Dante Wright was literally murdered like nine to 10 kilometers away from where George Floyd was killed. So literally, if you think about this in in London, it's like the same borough. Yes. And you just think about the terrorism that a community is experiencing if, these types of incidents can just happen so nearby. For me, that's what made me feel like if there isn't a guilty verdict and people have this additional pain to deal with, it's going to be crazy. And so I think one of the things that really struck me with the verdict, I was thinking, you know, when you have these movies, when you have these slave movies, when you have these movies that focus on black pain, basically, There's always like a white savior. There'll be like a good cop. There'll be like this abolitionist person. And then I thought, wow, in real life, it doesn't actually work out like that. In real life, black people had to protest globally, globally for this result to happen. It got to the point where there was so much fervor around it, but that fervor was black people in London, black people in Paris, black people all over the US, black people in Brazil protesting the murder of George Floyd. And I think it got to the point where it's just, and like you said, you have the video. It's so apparent, it's so obvious. And I think all of the cases are obvious. But I think this was so obvious that it was like, okay, we we have to find him guilty because you have to sacrifice. Somebody said something like it got to the point where they had to sacrifice one of their own. And I think that that's accurate. I think it got to the point where they had to make an example of him because this had blown up way yeah. out of control.
1: Yeah, almost like it was a box ticking exercise. He wasn't found guilty just because he was guilty. He was found guilty because in addition to being guilty, no one could afford the potential ramifications of him not receiving a guilty sentence.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's kind of what I think happened. And I was wondering, you know, do you think the result would have been different if Trump was still in, the, in office?
1: It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because he, as a brief tangent, right? My husband and I are watching old movies at the moment. We're going back to like the classics, which I'm a fan of anyway. But we started watching Citizen Kane the other night. And I don't know if you've watched it before. But basically, the idea of Citizen Kane is it's the story of like this richest man in America who, you know, starts out in newspapers. Oh, apparently Trump loves that movie. favorite movie. Right. Well, that is so interesting. I didn't know that. But at the beginning of the movie, there's this scene where he's like, even though he is wealthier than God, he's like speaking for the common person. And I turned to my husband and I was like, I feel like this is what people wanted Trump to be that he was authentic in his, I'm fighting for the little guy. Like I'm one of you, even though we all know that that wasn't true, that wasn't accurate. And he was just looking for the easiest way to get ahead. So I think that it's hard to say one way or another if the verdict would have been different. But what I do think is that there would have been unrest either way, because there would have been unrest if Derek Chauvin had been found innocent, but also When he was found guilty, I think that Trump would have allowed that faction of people who think, oh, well, actually, George Floyd had what was coming to him, he would have allowed them to feel empowered about, oh, now we just live in a snowflake society. So I think that there would have been unrest this time with a guilty verdict if Trump was still in power.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think that's a really, really good point. So even if the verdict was guilty, there would have been some backlash from those far right people that were empowered by Trump. Yeah, I do agree with that. And, you know, I wasn't a big Biden fan, why would I be? But I do think that Biden does have a way of bringing the American people together in a way that, I mean, the bar is on the floor, right? But I don't think Trump could bring American people together. And I think that Biden has really brought America together. But considering where we were with the Trump government, I think that, Biden has restored a bit of dignity to the White House, which basically Nancy Pelosi tried to kill by saying that George Floyd sacrificed his life for justice.
1: I know, it's really difficult, because I do think I've seen a a prevalence of that kind of narrative on social media. And I think that we're probably going to end up talking about social media quite a lot in this episode, because I think it's playing a huge role in people's burnout at the moment. But It's like we don't know how to compartmentalize or process trauma unless we push it into this almost, as you noted, like saviour, sacrificial movie narrative. And it's not enough that George Floyd was murdered. You know, there was someone shared something on LinkedIn about it. And I'm a bit kind of, I guess, iffy about sharing political statements on linkedin because i understand or more than i understand people's criticism of it i understand when people say listen this is a a networking platform like this is a career focused networking platform this isn't the place for your political opinions i get that but someone had posted about again hoping for the right verdict And the comments underneath were saying things like, you know, why would this guy beat up his girlfriend or whatever, you know, criticisms they can make of George Floyd. And I just thought on a fundamental level, you know that the police aren't supposed to kill you if you're guilty. That's still not supposed to happen. And so the idea that it would be justified because George Floyd might have been not a great guy is so problematic, but is so entrenched in The narrative that so many people have, it's impossible to explain to them, whatever the case was, whether that $20 bill was counterfeit or not, that was not a proportionate reaction. And that's not how our
0: justice system is supposed to work. That is the function, especially when you have police in black communities, right? That is the function. It's interesting that point you make around LinkedIn, because a lot of people are like, oh, it's a professional platform. Um, and I think someone made a really important point where they said it's such a privilege to say this is not the time or place. To discuss something like the murder of George Floyd. And I always see it on posts where people are talking about racial justice. Oh, this is not the time or place. It's LinkedIn. But on LinkedIn, people are posting about their dogs. People are posting about their kids. You know, the the personal and the professional do intersect now. Mm-hmm. But where I see the backlash is when people are talking about racial justice. And so for me, no. If people want to get onto a, onto a LinkedIn platform and say, I am praying for a right verdict, et cetera, et cetera, I'm completely okay with that because I'm one of those people that doesn't have the privilege to turn those thoughts off or turn that sentiment off just because I'm at work.
1: No, I totally get that. And I think that's a really good point. I think that the way that i've often thought about it is that it particularly on on a platform like linkedin the the default is the kind of heteronormative white male narrative narrative is the wrong word i'm looking for here but you know what i mean like these are the people who who hold the most power particularly in like professional services or like career platforms and I do think you're right. I think it is a privilege to be able to separate those things out completely. And even when there were things that I was doing in my personal life that I thought were cool and that I'd love to to share more, you know, when I was on the, the abortion rights campaign committee and things like that, and we were doing that work for the repeal the eighth amendment in Ireland, I would be like, God, this is a cool thing to do. Like I've been on a radio station and I've been talking about it. And then I think, but if I share it, does this then become one of those things that I have to defend that. And to use that example is something that I don't have skin in the game in the same way that you do as a black woman talking about racial justice. Do you know what I mean? But you end up thinking, oh, it's less hassle to not say anything. So I think where I come down on it is I agree with you saying it's a privilege to be able to separate those things out and if people want to to share that kind of sentiment then they should absolutely feel empowered to do so but equally if people do think about it in the context of oh i don't want i don't want this to be an argument or i don't want this to be something that gets held against me at a later stage like in a an opportunity removal capacity then that is also fine do you know sometimes i feel we hold people to such a high standard where it's like you haven't said something and I support your right to not say something is what I'm trying to say, ironically yeah. using quite a lot of words.
0: Yeah, I think that there was a lot of that with the whole, you know, anti-Asian violence, right? People saying, Oh, why Asians not speaking up? Why Asians not speaking up? Right. So to a certain extent, you know, I think that people don't have to say something if they don't want to. I don't put all of my opinions on LinkedIn either, because I don't particularly want to be having confrontations with people so I do understand that but I think my perspective on this has really changed like yes I am black and yes I am female but if we think about racism and if we think about sexism I'm in an oppressed group and there are loads of privileges that I do have that allow me to be able to advocate for myself and I do think that there is a spectrum but like I'm definitely in an underrepresented group and what I've seen on LinkedIn that I really appreciate is I've seen white people taking control of the conversation. I saw a really excellent article on LinkedIn with a written by a white lady who worked in Silicon Valley, and she was saying that white women are actually the greatest upholders of white supremacy in Silicon Valley. Her article was so powerful, and she was saying that. I'm actually sacrificing something that I've taken fifteen years to build, which is my career, and she talked about all of her experiences working for female bosses. I just love the fact that she she talked about j k. Rowling and sort of white feminism in a broader context, and all the people commenting were white people, and I felt great, and then even a white lady commented and she said, "You know I was one of those female bosses." And I'm really ashamed. Wow. You know, so thank you for sharing your story. And that's how you move the boat forward. It's not Jules sharing her experiences that moves the boat forward because people see George Floyd being murdered and debate whether he deserved it or not. So me sharing my story, I really don't feel it moves the boat forward. I think it can make other people feel empowered enough to share their point of view. But when a white woman steps up, and uses her privilege to hold her own class of people accountable. That's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And she posted that on LinkedIn, right? And I think perfect forum for that because yes. work is not a vacuum, right? Work is a reflection of our society. And then I also saw another white man do a similar thing and he writes his post basically and he's like, dear white males, this is what we need to do to like make a change. Then he amplifies a lot of the voices of like different articles that he reads. And I followed him and I thought, this is how you move the boat forward. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think LinkedIn can actually be really, really powerful in terms of changing the culture at work. And when people think about racism and like, you know, equality, people always think about black people and what's it like for black people and what's it like for underrepresented groups you know I think about the suffragettes I think about people that fought for women to have a voice fought for women to have a vote fought for women to have equal opportunity in the workplace and then you have a couple of women who get to a certain point and they say oh no I don't see gender so the equality conversation is so much bigger than it's not just a racial one
1: Yeah, totally. And that's such a good point. Because, again, just for I guess anyone listening who's like, well, I don't understand why that would be a negative thing to say. Um, I think it's a good thing to not see gender or not see race or whatever. The problem is with that mindset, that we need that cultural context to inform decisions, because we've said this on the podcast before, heterosexual relationships are fundamentally negative for women. Because women end up, broadly speaking, taking on the the burden of domestic labor. They take on the burden of emotional labor. There is an expectation built in there. And so if you think about a woman wanting to progress in her career, but also potentially have a family and maintain her familial relationships, I'm sorry, but gender does have to form a part of your expectations there. So, at the moment, I am starting to think about what my dissertation is going to be for my MBA. And, you know, one of the things that you're kind of recommended to do is think about areas that are of interest to you anyway and see how you can pull those in to discuss in the context of, you know, modules that we're studying. So, for me, some of the ideas that I'm floating about at the moment are parental leave and employee attrition, because women leave the workforce in droves past a certain point. And that usually the the trigger point for that is labor and pregnancy and having children, because it becomes untenable for them to have any kind of a work-life balance. And the problem is that then you've got educated, hardworking, ambitious, intelligent women who are not continuing to work because we don't make work-life balance feasible. In the exact same way, we have men who are missing out on building familial relationships with their children because the expectation is that men are the provider and so they work the harder hours and they can afford to be more career-driven because they are not primary caregivers. And obviously, I'm super oversimplifying this. I am making this into two very binary gender examples. But the point is that whether or not you... Speak that into existence, whether or not you address it overtly, it is something that people are considering and weighing up and factoring in in every house or most houses on the street. My husband was having a conversation with someone recently who was saying that people don't realize how hugely invasive it is to ask questions about will you have another one? How many children do you want? All of these things that are so baked into just like casual small talk because we fail to, even though we know, so it's not even really a failure to take into consideration because I'm thinking about having children and I'm thinking, okay, when, what will it look like? My husband will take on the burden of child care, And I still ask those questions of people because it's like, oh, well, that's a default. That's a safe conversation topic. And it's not because unless we're, as you said, happy to actually push the boat forward in terms of the reworking that our work expectations or our career expectations have, we're not getting anywhere. We're just in a feedback loop basically.
0: Yeah. And I just think if you look at everything that's happening with COVID and a lot of the data is saying that, you know, COVID-19 has taken women in the workplace back 50 plus years. And then you've got somebody on a call saying they don't see gender it's so misinformed and it's very reckless. I'm just lucky that I don't work for someone like that because that just put, shows me it's not a safe space. Like it's not a space where I can actually come to you with a specific issue because you just don't see it. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because I do feel that for a long time you had work and then you had your personal life, right? And those things were really separate. So you would make friends at work and stuff, but those things were really separate. But then with the camera being in your home now that kind of separation is definitely over I think there was a blur but I do think now things have completely collided Mm -hmm. and that's why I think it is important for people to use their platform and to use their voice to try to create a more equitable environment in the workplace especially considering how much time people spend at work also last week, I was reading around the whole saga with Scott Rudin, who is a producer, like he's a Hollywood guy. I don't know if you followed that story.
1: Yes, I did. Yeah. And I read that it was in the Hollywood Reporter, wasn't it? The, the full kind of expose on him.
0: Yeah. So I didn't read the whole like expose, but I was reading like bits and bobs, right? This guy was basically a bully, terrorized his colleagues, and unfortunately, his old assistant ended up committing suicide. And his close friend said they feel that the experience he had working with Scott Rudin damaged his mental health so badly that he was put on a negative spiral. spiral. Yeah, basically. And so that's the story. And then one of Scott Rudin's colleagues, old colleague, came out on LinkedIn to say, white male came out on LinkedIn to say, you know what, I'm really sorry, I'm really ashamed because I enabled you know, this behavior. I didn't use the power that I had to challenge him at all. And I always say on the podcast, when you have someone that is a bully, when you have someone that is a menace at work, people are complicit in that, right? And so what other platform was, I mean, of course, I guess you could go on Facebook, but I think less and less people are on Facebook and you can use Instagram to make those types of statements too. But I saw his statement on LinkedIn and it kind of reminded me a bit of Gary Barlow, like when people come out and it's like too late. Yes. What is, you know, I just felt a bit sort of, I was kind of rubbed the wrong way by it. But my thing is, okay, fine. You've come out and like, you've apologized. It's too little, too late maybe it's your way of like it's your redemption just coming out and admitting that you know I didn't use the power and privilege I had you know and I'm sorry and his whole thing was as time went on the people that were being bullied and abused were getting younger and like he was old enough to be their father.
1: Right oh that's interesting I thought that you were gonna say something like you know that poem first they came for it that he was like oh actually the reason I didn't say anything was because The people that he was bullying were becoming more senior, and suddenly I was worried for myself. So it's interesting that there was some kind of pulling on the heartstrings there.
0: Yeah, but the challenge you have with the arts, especially or the creative industries, especially, is that people are already vulnerable because they've got no benefits, the pay is low, the community is really small. So you want to do a good job because you need those references and you need those recommendations. And so people starting out in their career are so vulnerable if they don't have, if they're not the son of, Mm -hmm. right? They're so vulnerable. And it just rubbed me the wrong way in the sense that I'm like, well, I'm not going to give you credit. I'm not going to give the second most powerful person in the room credit for coming out 10, 15 years down the line Mm -hmm. to say, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't use my my voice.
1: I think as well... There can be this attitude sometimes where it's like, well, I went through it. So why wouldn't you have to? And you see this a lot when it's like wiping university debt, where people are like, well, I don't want university debt to be wiped because I had to pay mine. So why should yours not have to pay hers?
0: Yeah. And that's what and I'm going to link this article because for me, it was really powerful that this lady wrote on LinkedIn around, you know, white female leaders being really toxic in Silicon Valley. And that was one of the points that she made where women have gone through so much to get a certain amount of power and they feel like, what is power? Okay, they model their power on misogyny and sexism and patriarchy and they feel that they need to embody that behavior to maintain their power. And so when people are coming up, they feel like, oh, I've gone through it. Your turn. This is how it's supposed to go, yeah. This is how it's supposed to go. It's like when they say people that were abused become abusers, right? It's like a psychological thing and and she highlights that in her piece.
1: Well, it's interesting as well because I always think that female leaders always have to be like, either they rule with an iron fist or they're a pushover. And that personality tightrope Isn't something that men have to walk in the same way? And that is true. We all know it's objectively true because if you think about your experience with leadership or management, whatever, that is a thing that things don't act as a stain on men in the same way that they can for women or more marginalized groups. Because you've got to be the perfect example. You've got to be doing it all and you've got to be doing it well. And so it's interesting that when you say people emulate the power structure that they've seen coming up. And the thing is, it must be like a heady rush because it happens to so many people that it must be that when you get there, when you get to that position of seniority that you've absolutely idealized and put on a pedestal, it must suddenly be like, oh, actually, it's slightly more hassle than I had originally anticipated to be the manager who's super flexible and you know, like doesn't shout and doesn't rule by fear. So maybe it does take more of a a conscious mindset to not proliferate that attitude that I can appreciate. I'm not a manager, I'm not a leader. But yeah, it's understandably exhausting for people who are not high up in those power structures to think about, hey, how am I gonna get there? And B, how can I dismantle this, either from the inside or from my current position?
0: Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about sort of dismantling it, because I don't really feel like you can dismantle anything. You know, I think for me, my goal is always to make sure that people that interact with me have a positive experience with me. And I try to treat every single person with respect. And I try to model behavior that reflects my values. And so sometimes I am in situations where... There are people who are more senior that don't necessarily behave in a way that I think is right, but like you have to pick your battles as well. So, so I'm not going to war with every single person because that would be a drain. So, totally. it's, it's difficult to manage your energy, I think.
1: And also, like I think one final thing to add here is that for me, I'm always like we said it on the podcast before. If I die at work, they will recruit my replacement. And I'm lucky in the place that I work now, I think that there is a, a great attitude around you know that flexibility. but I'm sure I've shared this on the the podcast before, but I had a client years ago, and I was at a meeting with him just before Christmas, and he was an American guy, and I asked him, was he doing anything nice over the the festive period and he said, "You Europeans are obsessed with taking your annual leave." Mm-hmm. And even now, that must be three years ago, I'm still thinking about it. And I'm just like, what a myopic attitude to have. If you die, they will recruit your replacement. And all you've done is sacrifice a Christmas with your family or sacrifice it like a a holiday period with your family when you could be spending time with them. He was like, you know, the fact is, if there's work to be done, then I'm going to stick around and do it. It's like nobody else is working. What gold star are you giving yourself and what kind of environment does that make you as a leader complicit in fostering in your organization?
0: Hmm. I do think that that well in the UK because I can't I think the US is so different in terms of their work culture but I do think in the UK that kind of like humble bragging over not taking any leave and working in a way that's not sustainable I do think that's kind of changing. I know people who work really hard and are always like running from pillar to post with work and they're always very overwhelmed with work and I always find that a bit like it's not something I admire at all because in order for you to be productive you need to work in a way that is sustainable so when people say to me oh my god I'm so busy I can't do that I'm so busy I can't do that and I'm really busy people ask me Jules wow how do you manage to have the output that you have like I am super busy but I'll rarely say to someone oh my god I'm so busy I can't manage Mm -hmm. it because I try to to work in a way that that is sustainable for me and even maybe sometimes I should drop things too but it's not putting yourself in hospital over work or giving yourself anxiety or putting yourself in a situation where your mental health goes down isn't cool it's not something I admire I look at that and I'm like mate good luck Totally.
1: And it's funny that you say that about, you know, like the output. One thing that kind of acts as my guiding principle, for want of a better word, is that I don't want to be boring. And so like you can be boring and have a million different hobbies, don't get me wrong. But I feel like making sure that you're someone who is engaged in other things, having like a hobby doing something it makes you an enjoyable person to be around because you are, you're working that part of your brain. And I'm not saying as well, I don't want anyone to be listening to this and be like, well, I've hung out with her and she's actually very boring. Because I can be at times. No. um, But seriously, it's one of those things where like, I love doing this podcast. I love doing my MBA. I really enjoy my work. And There are things that I do as well, like I'm working on creative writing more. I've been saying for the last five years that I'm going to start learning French again. There are things that it's like, listen, you should do that just because it's like, it's a fun thing to do. You were not put on this earth to work a 12-hour day, then eat something in front of the TV, then go to bed. And I spoke with a friend about this over the weekend because... My MBA is kicking off, which you would expect. I've been doing it for almost a year now, but it's like one of those things where I am becoming so much more engaged with the electives I'm choosing and the subjects that I'm doing. And unfortunately, that means that in some ways my social life has taken a dip because I am not as immediately available to do things on a whim or whatever the case may be. And I struggle to make peace with that at times because obviously what happens is people do things anyway. It's like they're not not doing things because you're not available. They're just doing things and you're not there. And so there have been a couple of times where I'm like, oh, man, everyone's having so much fun on Instagram. And that has been hard to to contend with. Right. But the idea is that it's a marathon, not a sprint, and that there are always going to be points in your life where you have more bandwidth to do one thing than others, or something has to experience a bit of a dip while others experience a surge. But as we get older, hobbies are not, or interests are just not given as much of a priority. Like you think about being a kid or being a teenager. Like I was in the swimming club. I did creative writing. I played the piano. I played the harp. There were all of these things that I just did. Like I did you know like mixed martial arts just to try it out like there are all of these things that you were just doing because it's like it's part of the curriculum but also you just it's a given that you should be cultivating interests and hobbies and then as you get older it's like oh my hobby is just supposed to be my job like I don't think so
0: yeah I think for me I'm literally like a kid because I have so many hobbies (laughs) I literally have like a timetable and I have hobbies like Monday I have to do this, Tuesday I have to do that, Wednesday I have to do that and I still maintain everything, I still do my running, I still do my French, I still do my podcast, I still do my clubhouse, I still do my work, I think I'm going to have to stop. (laughs) (laughs) And I still try to socialise but it's um, like I'm not saying every people need to get out there and have like a bunch of hobbies but I do think that you have to kind of create a life that is fulfilling for you. And the reason why, and I actually don't believe that work is meant to be the number one thing that fulfills you. I'm really privileged because I really love what I do, but it's not like the all and end all of my life. Right. And I think that people can get really burnt out when they don't have other things in their life that are bringing them joy, especially with us working from home and the office being on all the time it's not easy to create boundaries and I actually read it personally for me LinkedIn has been so when people don't talk about immediate work tasks on LinkedIn I find them the most interesting and this senior consultant was saying that you know it was the last day at the firm that he was working for and he wanted to thank the people that he worked with and then he was saying how for years he was really battling with like mental health issues like social anxiety had a bit of depression and he went to his managers about it and it was like a lead balloon but then his colleagues like really supported him and then over the years he was finally diagnosed with like he actually received the diagnosis for what he had mm-hmm. and then he basically pivoted to kind of developing a passion around wellness mm mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are on that journey where it's what are the things that genuinely excite me? What am I passionate about? What is the extra value that I can bring and how do I align that with my work? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really key. So if you take he could have taken this whole thing as like, oh, look at me, you know, I've I've got depression or I can't really cope with work and, you know, I need to leave work. But it was like he developed a set of tools to help him kind of optimise his life and optimise his work. And then he was able to kind of bring that wellness piece to work. And I think more than ever, like, wellness is so key. Because there was so much stigma around wellness. There was so much stigma. Even now, there's still a stigma around, oh, this person needs a mental health day. Oh, totally. Totally.
1: Particularly when, again, that was difficult anyway. It's even more difficult now that we're at home. because. Yeah. A mental health day is slightly different to a holiday,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but how are you supposed to have that conversation? It's difficult enough to be sick at home without feeling like, well, actually, if I was in the office, I'd probably just ask if I could work from home if I was feeling sick. When you're at home, and then you're saying, can I just not be online today? There is a, a like a mental quandary with that, which shouldn't exist. And yeah. I don't need to keep bringing it back to, what if you died? But genuinely, like when you say career shouldn't be the number one thing that fulfills people, if I did die, I wouldn't want people to be like, gosh, she was a brilliant relationship manager. <laughs> That's not what I want the first sentence to be. I want it to be like, oh man, she ran four marathons. She did this. She was so much fun. She was like, she was so weirdly interested in X, Y, Z. Like those anecdotes are what makes up a life. And those anecdotes exist outside of your workflow. That doesn't mean that it can't be your work friends because I think that you can make powerful friendships within work, but more that it's like, it shouldn't center around, your emails or your KPIs or those metrics, they are not are yeah. as a person.
0: Yeah, but I do also think that being able to kind of critically engage with your work and think about what the additional things that I could bring and mm-hmm. like all of that stuff, right, the stuff that I'm talking about, I think that it, it does come from a place of privilege because we are in a pandemic, people are furloughed, people are losing their jobs. I read something really, really, sad I don't know if it's sad is the word but I was really saddened by it in the Guardian where they were saying that 40 percent of black youth are now unemployed Mm. and if the official statistic is 40 percent then it's probably higher right if you look at underemployment and stuff like that and we've talked about what's happening with women in the workplace as well and I think a lot of people just don't want to rock the boat so I completely get that but it we all need to find ways to make sure that we take care of ourselves. Totally.
1: And sometimes that self-care, like we touched on this before, but I feel so strongly that sometimes self-care is like dressed up as, oh, it's getting yourself a muffin and a warm cup of tea and just being cuddled on the sofa. Or having a nice bubble bath and a glass of wine. And it's like, listen, sometimes self care is that, but sometimes self care is actually doing like grittier work. One of the people that, who has impressed me so much over the past year is my husband, who is a hairdresser and has been out of work for, you know, most of the past year and has sat down and thought about what are my values? What do I wanna pursue? What do I want my next five years to look like? And you know, he's doing a degree now. And again, that comes from a place of privilege where we can afford to to do that. But he's doing a degree in German and Spanish. But as well as that, he's resitting some of his A-levels, because he's like, I didn't care about it when I was a teenager and I didn't work hard at it. And now I want to go back and I want to do that properly. And I just think like that's self-care as well. That's the self-care. Of that.
0: That's the stuff that we need to be shouting about. That is the stuff that we need to be shouting about. And I think that it's amazing when people do have time and take that time to kind of reassess and think, yeah, what what do I want my life to be like in 10 years? Right. That's really, really amazing. Like, I I think that's amazing. I rate anyone that is able to be like self-reflective and think I want to do something different. And I do hope that we can try to use this time to do exactly what Charles is doing. But then I also acknowledge that not everyone has the chance to say, you know what, let me do, let me go back to school or let me go and and do all of these things. But guys, we are coming at a time. And one thing I did really want to mention, I didn't get the chance earlier around, you know, everything that happened with George Floyd. I think another reason why it was so traumatizing is that even when you got the news that the verdict is guilty and you think, oh, that's a relief. There was a 16 year old black female that was uh, shot, that was killed by police and her name is Makaya Bryant. And I just think it's important for us to kind of recognize her as well. And I just have nothing to say about some of the things that I was seeing around that incident. Like that was so heartbreaking in the fact that people want to justify a kid being killed.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: hate when children are killed and they say young man or they say young woman. It's like, it was a child that was killed
1: absolutely because it's always a child when it's a white perpetrator of a crime
0: <laughs> yeah exactly it's always a child when they're 30 they're still a kid
1: yeah absolutely and I think it was Adam
0: Toledo was the the other child who was also shot dead by a cop well I was upset about that because his own lawyer referred to him as a young man <sighs> it's wild it's wild it's absolutely wild it's absolutely crazy but yeah I think for us like the key message today is that you know we do hope that through it all through all the uncertainty and all the craziness that's going on um you do find some time to take care of yourself and if you do have some tips reach out to us
1: absolutely please because I think that this is ongoing work you're never going to be like one and done we're all masterpieces in progress right And if you need tips, get in touch as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like we'd love to hear from our listeners and you can find us on Instagram, like find us on TikTok. Please share the podcast with a friend as well.
1: And thank you so much for listening.
0: Bye. Bye. Bye.